he was going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And he had a very specific purpose of why he was going this year. Passover being a celebration of the feast that commemorated um, the final plague in Egypt when the angel of death passed over the Jews, killing the firstborn of the Egyptians. Through this time, you had many other things going alongside. The Jewish leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. Judas Iscariot betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. The Passover meal is held with his disciples. That night is described beautifully in all of the Gospels. A time to celebrate this feast, a time to introduce the new covenant, a time of prayer for his disciples and for his future believers as well. There was teaching, remembrance, washing of feet. Then Jesus goes to the garden to pray. To pray because he understood what was, he was about to undertake. He was arrested. He had a speedy trial by night. He was brought before various leaders. He was ridiculed, mocked, beaten, whipped, having a crown of thorns thrust into his head. And he did so with the attitude on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What type of love says that? What type of love expresses that type of attitude? This morning we want to reflect on what Jesus went through on the cross. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Matthew 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under some of the seats. There's also some extras on my desk or in the Sunday school rooms. Or you can pull it up on your phone as well. We're going to go a little old school today and not have any slides. In Matthew 27, I'm going to begin in verse 32. As they went out... They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them cast by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. 
Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Knowing what would happen, Jesus instituted what we called the Lord's Supper the night before. If you want to turn back to Matthew 26. I'll begin in verse 26. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, or take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I'll not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So during the Passover meal, he is instituting a new covenant, as he says. And he is instructing them on the meaning of what this covenant is, knowing that his blood would be given for the forgiveness of sins, to pay the debt that is owed because of sin. It should be paid by us as sinners. But it, again, shows the love and that while we were still sinners, Jesus gave his life for us. Here at Harvest, we celebrate an open communion, meaning that it is open to all who believe. The stipulation being, you must be a believer. A person who believes that Jesus Christ died to pay for their sins so that they may have eternal life. Believing is not a ticket to heaven. Believing is something where we understand what Jesus has done for us and it is transformational in our life. By participating in this communion together, it also comes with warning in scriptures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment 
on himself. So as I ask the men to come forward with the bread today, I would like us to spend some time examining ourselves, confessing sin in our life, seeking that forgiveness to restore that peace. So let's take a few moments to examine ourselves. Father, we praise you for your salvation today. We praise you for your plan of redemption. And as we continue to walk through this life, there are still struggles that we have in our life that momentarily break that, that peace where we're focused on things other than you. And we ask for forgiveness, Lord. We confess it openly. And we pray for your strength in times of temptation. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As the men pass around the bread, you may take a roll if you want to share that with your family. There's also individual servings that you can take as well. We do ask that um, for the bread you hold until everybody has been served and we will partake in that together. On the night that Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and told his disciples, eat this, take this. When you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This represents my body which will be given up for you. So as we eat, let us remember what Jesus has done for us. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Through the sacrificial system 
Animals were killed to cover the sins of the people. Through the blood of Jesus, he has washed away our sins. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he made a new covenant. He said that this cup represents my blood, the blood that will be poured out for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. When you drink of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. As you get the cup, you may drink and then we'll pray to close. pray Father what a joy it is to be able to celebrate communion with brothers and sisters in Christ remembering what it is that you have done for us Lord as we transition now I just pray that you would continue to focus our hearts and minds Lord, help us not to think of the different errands that we have to run and the things that we have to get done for get-togethers today or the different hardships or trials that are going on in our life. But Lord, I just pray that we can rest in your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So after the death of Jesus... After the earthquake, after the chaos in the temple with the curtain being torn, I think that people would realize that this was anything but a normal Passover feast. Matthew records this in the burial. Matthew 27, verse, beginning in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And you know, this is where most traditions stop and they pause. Now in Matthew, it does say on the next day that the chief priests or the Sadducees go and they try to gather together a guard to be placed at the tomb. But primarily from this moment, there is silence. In the Gospel of Matthew, you have seven chapters covering the last week of Jesus' life. In detail, the things that he said, the teachings that he did, the parables that he did. 
And then once he is buried, silence. The sound of silence. Not just a catchy song, but something that can be scary. Because in silence, you're alone with your thoughts. In silence, you feel the awkwardness of being uncomfortable, wanting to fill that gap with some sort of noise. After the death of Jesus, hope is seemingly lost. The disciples go into hiding because they fear the Jews, they fear the Romans of being associated with him. They lock themselves in their homes. Silence. <laughs> there the disciples remain in silence with their thoughts, as scary as it may be. How could their king be killed? How could their king be defeated just like that? How could they have got it so wrong? Pondering everything that has happened in the last week. Dizziness from the confusion. Mind, minds being numbed. Trying to process what's going on. All of this mixed with deep grieving. That would be difficult to understand. These are just some of my thoughts of when I place myself in the disciples' shoes of what they must have been going through on this Sabbath day, this day of rest. Silence. Asking the question, how can this be? A question of processing, of grieving. A question that would eventually get flipped into a wonderful hymn, Amazing Love. Through the processes of grieving, through the processes of silence, you take another step forward. The days continue. Matthew 28, 1 starts this way in most Bibles. Now, after the Sabbath. Now is the same word as but. And it goes back to one of my favorite phrases. Where do you place your butts? But after the silence. But after the horrendous death. After the Passover that would see the sacrifice of the firstborn in Jesus. He was raised to life. But for God. After Jesus comes back, Matthew simply records Jesus' saying, Greetings. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there you will see me. I've done many sunrise services over the years, over passages like this that tell of the joy, the hope, and the excitement of seeing Jesus, of hearing his voice after his death. I don't think that we can fully understand the emotion, the elation that goes through the hearts and minds when this happens. 
I mean, it could be close to, to thinking back to the first time that you were filled with the Spirit. And the, just the rush that comes over you that you can't describe, that you can't put words to, but you try to because it's so magnificent. It's so wonderful. But it comes up far short. I think we have that same type of attitude anytime we go into the depths of the names of God. Where we can just scratch the surface to understand who God is. But we continue to dive deeper. Because more and more continues to be revealed by God. And it always leaves us breathless. Again, last year, if you recall, we were on, we had our services through Zoom. I mentioned how that was probably a closer picture to what the first Resurrection Sunday would have looked like. All of us in our homes, uncertain of what's going to happen in the future, going through the COVID pandemic. We found some similarities this year, or last year. This year, we're together again for the most part. See a lot of faces again today for the first time in a while. It's so good to see you here. For those that are still visit, or watching through Zoom, we miss you, we love you, and we do hope that you can join us soon. Because it's a different atmosphere when we come together as a church body. It's so wonderful to be able to worship as a group. As we think back through the events of this last year, the world and our own lives have had some ups and downs. And we've had to show some perseverance to get through a lot of that. And even more perseverance for some things that are coming ahead. But we have hope. We have hope because we, we, we worship a risen Lord. And today I want to dive a little bit deeper into that meaning of hope. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning I want to walk through this chapter to dive a little bit deeper in this hope that we have because he is risen. Beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he had appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, 
So we preach, and so you believed. What a wonderful reminder to open this chapter. A reminder for this church and the things that they were going through and all that Paul was addressing. The church at Corinth has gone through some deep divisions. There was some immorality going on. They were not taking communion properly. They did not understand the agape love to treat others the way that God treats them. And he reminds them of the gospel message that had been preached to them. You look at verses 3 and 4. This is a simple presentation of the gospel message. Some may think it's too simple. But the faith of a child responds to simplicity. Especially in a life that tries to overcomplicate, tries to distract us at every corner. This is what I had also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. A simple presentation of the gospel message. Paul then goes into the importance of how Jesus was seen by all of these people. Eyewitness accounts of what had happened, verifying the validity of this claim, the claim of the Christian faith that Jesus' death pays for our sins. And the claim of the resurrection proves that the fulfilled purposes of Jesus was to justify us before God. Now through this whole chapter, we're going to see it going back to this point and why the resurrection matters to a Christian. But even with the simplicity of this gospel message, what is the normal response? Well, I didn't see it for myself, so I don't believe it. Even in the scriptures, it talks many places about faith and how it defines faith. Understanding that, you know, sometimes people would believe something without seeing it in order to have faith. But many times people struggle with that. They want to be able to see it with their own eyes, and they won't believe it unless they do. But of course, we can say this about any event in history. Any event in history that was before your time. If you didn't see it, how do you know it actually happened? You can do this with all of, not all of, many of the theories that are being touted as truth today. We talked about that last night. Things that are claimed as facts. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there? And of course, the ever common retort, have you ever seen your brain? How do you know you have one? Again, sometimes even if we see something with our own eyes, we struggle believing it because it could be so incredible, so fantastical. You begin to show some skepticism or you challenge what you're seeing. Is this really real? Is this the truth? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know the truth. And thankfully, the internet has come around the last 30 years to verify what we know as the truth. Because we're the best judge of it, right? Hopefully, you can taste the sarcasm. But Paul, he is laying out this case. He's laying out the case for the resurrection to be real because Jesus is seen alive after his death by so many people. In this culture, you only needed two witnesses to verify something as being true. 
There's over 500 that Paul mentions. He's reminding the church at Corinth what was preached to them by many of these witnesses. So they had preached and so they had believed. But there was a problem that Paul is addressing. In this next section, starting with verse 12, it does start with the, the term now or but. Make note of all of these nows, these buts, because it shows the contrasts. People are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. So as we read this next passage, this is a keystone part of this passage. And we want to follow through the logical order that Paul is giving, how A leads to B and then B leads to C. And we want to make sure that we can catch what he is saying. So let's read from verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you catch and follow that flow there? The purpose statements, the statements that he is making about the resurrection, the importance of that. Paul points out a couple of things uh, of importance within this section. Christians, they are to be pitied the most if their hope is in this life only. And this is especially true for the apostles and for Paul because they faced imprisonment, beatings, whippings. They were ridiculed for how they were living their life. It wouldn't have been fun. It would have been much easier if all of this was a lie to then just go and live however they wanted. If this wasn't true, if the resurrection didn't happen, then they should just go and be selfish. They should try to gain wealth. They should try to live in their sinful desires. This was a false teaching that is going around in the early church. You know, they would say that there's no resurrection of this earthly body, so you can sin, you can do whatever you want, because that body is going to be destroyed. That body doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. And Paul is fighting back against this. They do none of those types of things because they're listening to what Christ has taught them. Listening to his commands to have a moral life, to love others, to spread the gospel message, to be servants as his disciples. Why would they go through all of that for a lie? Uh, Chuck Colson, a person who worked for the Nixon administration during the Watergate scandal, became a Christian through all of that. He said this about the validity of the resurrection. I know that the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. They then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, 
tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. And the most important part of that section that we just read, I don't want you to miss this. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then his sacrifice was for nothing, and you are still in your sins. You are still stuck with this problem of being separated from God. You would not be fully justified because it would show that Jesus' sacrifice was not acceptable to God. If the resurrection did not happen, Christianity falls apart. And I want you to keep this in mind as we read through these next sections. Let's read verses 20 through 34 and really pay attention to the continual contrasts within this section. Starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. What a statement. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then, those, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things under, in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with these beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So, the main point of the resurrection is being drawn out within this section. The problem that we have as humans is death. Our days are numbered, and people have theorized and philosophized for years on the purpose of man. Why do we exist? Why are we here? And again, Paul says more at the end of this section. If this is all that there is, what's to stop people then from saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? What's to stop people from living in that selfish way of natural selection as we talked about last night with the Truth Project? But for God. Death, however, from a Christian standpoint, comes about by sin. Sin is a transgression against God. It is going against his commands, his decrees. 
It started with Adam in the garden and the disobedience of eating the forbidden fruit. The wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 tells us. And the punishment has been passed down through the generations. In the garden, God covered the sin. He covered the shame with the sacrifice because death was owed. The wages of sin is death. The life of an animal is in its blood, as we read in Leviticus during communion. Life had to be given back to God. And so the sacrificial system was put into place to cover the people's sins temporarily, to maintain that relationship with God. It was more like a Band-Aid rather than a cure. Jesus is the cure. We have hope to be raised into new life because of what it says in God's word because of what Jesus has done for us. Now there is mystery surrounding all of this, and there's mystery in this next portion of Scripture. And it can be difficult to understand. But I want to preface this next portion with what Peter says about Paul in 2 Peter. He says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Paul's hard to understand. Is that true? Yeah, he could be tough to understand. And you know, nobody wants to be ignorant. Nobody wants to distort what the word of God says. So this morning, we just want to read what the Word says for itself, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory." So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As it was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." So looking at that part of the passage, you look at verses 42 and following. 
um, in that section, and, and it talks about the different glories. You see some descriptions there. Now, uh, just a fun fact, as we also see these talks about the different glories ahead of verse 42, um, and we look and combine the distortions of the words of Paul. The Mormons believe that this section describes how there are four different heavens, and based on the purity of the believers determines on which glory you will receive, which heaven you will go to. You know, so again, we can see how distortions of the word of God can lead you down different paths. Similar, maybe, to why we have so many different denominations, even within the Christian umbrella. Different little variances of interpretation or beliefs. I simply believe that Paul is showing the differences in the different bodies so that we can identify and further elaborate the differences between our earthly body and our heavenly body. We also see the differences between the first Adam and the last Adam, between the first man and the son of man, as Luke calls Jesus, and how we bear the image of, of dust for now, but one day we will bear the image of the man of heaven. And that is hopeful. That is what we long for. The point of stressing this fact about the resurrection brings hope for our futures. He continues to elaborate this further, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now for this first part, we will be changed. I believe that our spirits go before God when we die. And then as it says here and in Revelation, at the last trumpet, our spirits will be reunited with our bodies and we will be glorified. It's how I understand how this is going to be. There's obviously mystery surrounding it. But that mystery, it brings, it's, it brings excitement. It brings curiosity to our minds to long for that type of hope. And as I get older... I definitely long for that imperishable body with chiseled features because I, I get a little tired rocking this dad bod anymore. And I can remember doing a eulogy for my grandmother. My grandma had nine kids. My aunts and uncles shared different things that they wanted included in the eulogy. But one of the things that they wanted mentioned was how she struggled in her life that she did not have that 130-pound skinny body because of her nine kids. 
But now that she was with Jesus, she had that 130-pound skinny body. And it was weird for me to say, speaking of your grandmother in that way, it's still weird to think about that. But it's something that we struggle with every day where we feel our bodies breaking down. We feel the mortality of life. Death is something that many people fear. But it is not something that we should fear as Christians. Because we understand that what we have is perishable. And it needs to be sown so that it can be imperishable. A body that's imperishable. Because we will have eternal life. Because we will be with the Father. We will experience the attributes of God, the, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, where we're going to understand perfect peace, love, joy, gentleness, kindness, patience, goodness, self-control. It's hard to envision that because as we are still in the flesh, we struggle with anger, with lust, with vanity, with lying, so forth and so on. We struggle because our flesh is corrupted by sin. Our desires are selfish. We don't, only, we don't fully understand who God is and what we're called to be as his servants. We don't fully live out the greatest commandments to love God and love others. But we grow in that. The corruption of our flesh is not an excuse to sin. It is not an excuse to not love God or to love others. Instead, the hope that we have in us drives us to fulfill those things. The spirit that is in us, the word of God that is in us, and we strive for his justice, his peace, his love to reign. And we do this because we know that the victory is won, that death is defeated, and the sting is not there. Death is a part of our life because of the fall, because of sin. But death has been defeated by our Lord and Savior, and we are justified in the eyes of God through his blood. And we place our faith and our hope and our trust in what he has done so that we may be raised to an eternal life. That is where our hope lies. As Hebrews chapter 10 says, and this is probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Beginning in verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a wonderful hope and great confidence that we have in our Savior, our risen King. Paul closes this chapter with this encouragement. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of our Lord, knowing that, the Lord, your, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We do not work or believe things in vain. Paul mentions this back up at the beginning of the chapter when he questions whether or not it, whether you have believed in vain. 
You know, this would be referencing those that are disciples by name only, not real believers. Our faith has nothing to do with vanity. We are not better than anyone else in this world. We simply understand who God is, is perfect, holy, supreme, sovereign, gracious, loving, merciful, just, judge. Continue on. Dive deeper into those terms. And we understand who we are as fallen sinners, separated from a holy God, destined for death and eternal separation. But for God so loved the world. God stepped in. God sent his son to die in our place to restore that peace and that relationship with the Father so that, for the purpose that, we may be raised to eternal life with him. Praise be to God for he is risen. Forever and ever, let us go out singing his praises, sharing our testimonies today. Let's pray. Father, as we celebrate today, as we come together as a body to worship you, to remember what you have done, instill in us the meaning of the hope that is in us so that we can be a light and a beacon for all of those around us. Lord, may your light shine through us brightly. As we go forward from this day to different engagements, as we go forward in this week, Lord, the world is going to try to rob that joy, to rob our peace that we have firmly in you. Lord, help us to, to continue to grow and be sanctified through your spirit, through your word, to understand, Lord, that we are yours and nothing can shake that. We praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.